0: This episode of The Chef's Manifesto podcast is brought to you by Kellogg. Kellogg is a leading global plant-based food company founded on the benefits of holistic well-being. Their partnership with The Chef's Manifesto allows us to reinforce the important role that plant-based foods have in our food systems. Through their plant-based foods, they're driving growth through purpose helping to address the interconnected issues of well-being, food security and climate resilience for people, communities and the planet and drive positive change for 3 billion people by the end of 2030. Kellogg are committed to doing their part to ensure that healthy and sustainable diets are available and affordable to everyone and The Chef's Manifesto supports this ambition. They are committed to feeding 375 million people by the end of 2030 through food donations, feeding programmes and disaster relief. Since 2016, Kellogg has donated nearly 1.3 billion servings of food to people through hunger programmes and partnerships with food banks globally. Additionally, they're supporting breakfast clubs in 32 countries and helping to expand school and summer feeding programmes in the United States.
1: We the
2: chefs, we the
1: chefs, are working together to create a better food food future. future.
0: I am George, Andy, Tom, from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, London. India, New Zealand. (laughs) Ingredients are medicine.
2: Ingredients are superpowers.
3: Food is joy.
0: Food is love. Food Food is is life. Hello
1: and welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a columnist and the author of cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. In this episode, we'll be looking at plant-based foods and diets and how we can reduce meat consumption and look to make vegetables and plant-based ingredients the centre of our dishes. Please join the Chef's Manifesto, subscribe, rate and like us below. Your feedback is important to us, not only so that we can make sure we are tapping into the subjects you care about, but to help with our reach. Today, I'll be talking to award-winning chef Chantel Nicholson about her thoughts on changing menus for the better. But first, we're going to hear from two chefs who I caught up with at the Eat Forum in Stockholm last year. Swedish chef David Johansson, who previously worked at the Swedish Consulate General in New York and at IKEA showcasing Swedish cuisine, and Megakoli, head chef of Lavash by Sabi, the Armenian restaurant in New Delhi's artsy Morali area. I asked them about what they're doing in their own restaurants with plant-based ingredients.
2: Hi, I'm Megha Kohli. I'm a chef from New Delhi in India. Uh, I run a restaurant called Lavash. It's in New Delhi and it's an Armenian restaurant. A restaurant that focuses on regional cooking and also on um, the cuisine that Armenians made in India with local produce once they migrated from their country and came to India. My menu is 60% vegetarian and I focus a lot on lesser known plant-based ingredients. I do have meat in my restaurant, but I focus more on plant-based. Brilliant. And do
1: you mind introducing yourself as well, please?
4: Yeah, my name is David Johansson, chef from Sweden, originally. been working around Scandinavia with different restaurants earlier, in uh, my earlier years. And then been in New York for almost nine years as well, running my own business and started to do Swedish cooking at the uh, Swedish consulate in New York. So I tried to be an ambassador for Swedish food. And lately i've been working a lot with product development for a big restaurant chain as well amazing
1: so we're here today to talk a little bit about plant-based cuisine which obviously you're both kind of doing a lot in your own restaurants and kitchens just to kind of yeah bring a bit of context from my own experience as well I've got a restaurant in bristol we have yeah 75 percent vegetarian menu but again we do serve meat i'm personally vegetarian and I'm in the process of writing about, writing plant-based cookbook. I've asked you to bring some ingredients from, yeah, from your, the cooking that you're doing. Do you mind telling us what you've brought
4: and, and kind of why, really?
1: What, how it's kind of influencing your plant-based cuisine.
4: What's this? That is a mix of grains. It's the four, like, classic Swedish grains that have been growing here in Sweden for a long time. It's barley, wheat, uh, oats, and um, rye and they're only cut. And this specific product is, it's uh, pressure steamed, like separately, and then it's dehydrated again, so you have the same cooking time on all of them. Because that's also, I think it's important to do the healthy food convenient. So this one you cook in 10 minutes, instead of that some, some of them you might need to soak, someone you, know, you n- need to cook them separately if you're gonna mix them, and it takes a little bit longer time. So here is the convenience of eating healthy and uh, yeah, rich in fiber, of course.
1: So it's a combination of four different grains. Four different grains. Traditional locally grown grains as well. Yeah. which is, And it smells amazing. It reminds me of farro as well and the Italian combination of yeah. einkorn. I think it's einkorn, spelt, and, and maybe wheat or, or yeah. another grain and absolutely delicious Uh, is this something that you've been integrating into your plant-based recipes
4: yeah use it a lot i mean you can toast them you can crisp them up and you use them as topping on salads Uh, you can use them as a base of different kind of grain bowls uh, where you just add different kind of pickled or fermented vegetables on top maybe a little bit of meat if you want that but but usually this is like the it can be both the like the, the main ingredients to build on or integrated in different kind of plant based patties or something like that, or just a nice addition to a texture or the that nutty flavour. You can flavor it any way you want. It's this one has a little bit of chili just to, to for for the spice, but there were also some lingonberries, berries, uh wild garlic. Can I try some mm? too? Would you like some? Yes, I would love some. Thank you. So this is no salt added to this one now, but it's Mm. the touch of rapeseed oil. And what's this other ingredient on here? Wild elder is the English word (laughs) I found. No one seems to know what it is, but in Sweden we call it kishkol. It's like a leafy cabbage, but it's a wild, you know, weed, wild, uh, like open field greens, if you want. grows in ditches and in bushes everywhere in Sweden just need someone to to uh, or go out by yourself to pick it of course but there is a lot of it it has a certain bitterness to it so but if you blanch it and you can sauté it use it as spinach and uh, so on it's uh, it's great i try to explore a little bit of of that you know what's what's in the woods or what's in you know all the greens that it's a we we eat such a small percentage of all the plants we have so Th- I I I think it's great to to incorporate more of it and the things that that because there is new flavors in it like you all of a sudden stumble over something and you just taste it and hopefully you don't get a bad reaction because you don't <laughs> know what you're eating but hopefully you find some good flavors. Yeah, no.
1: yeah. Make sure you know your plants if you're mm. going foraging. But um, it's what? Yeah. I mean, what I find interesting is that you've bought all kind of local ingredients, even the grains like now we tend to kind of eat a lot of imported food wherever we are in the world um so i think that kind of focus on traditional ingredients within our plant based cooking is vital mm-hmm. kind of it's you know just kind of taking one aspect just cooking more plants isn't yeah. going to isn't going to change the world but to kind of taking a broader approach like the chef's manifesto has kind of hitting all of these different Uh, manifesto points is kind of yeah how we can help create change as chefs I suppose and what ingredient have you brought in Uh,
2: this is called black chakao rice it's from Manipur which is um, a part in uh, northeast India uh, Northeast India shares a border with China, and this was also known as the Forbidden Rice in China, because it was res- it's so healthy that it was only reserved for the Chinese Emperor, and it's also grown <laughs> in Northeast in uh, vast amounts, but um, it's hardly used in India because everybody is obsessed with white rice, and um, I feel that um, uh, the. The kind of different rices, the types of rice that that were being produced in Asia has really dropped uh, because of um, everyone's preference towards white rice. And in India, we have a lot of different varieties of rice, black rice, red rice, uh, brown rice, different kinds of sticky rice, non-sticky rice. But... Hardly any are being consumed as such, apart from the local towns and villages where it's produced. Outside, we're not really celebrating uh, these ingredients, is what I feel. So I've incorporated this in my menu. I'm cooking with this tonight, and it in fact has the highest amount of anthocyanins that are found uh, in any rice. And it also it's unpolished, so it doesn't lose nutrients, and it's also fairly um, easy to grow.
1: And it's got this beautiful kind of purpley black color. Yes.
2: So once you cook it, if you cook it like in a porridge with milk, uh, it'll the milk will turn into a deep, beautiful color of purple, a deep, a really nice, beautiful shade. So I'm making a dessert, an Indian dessert, with it today. So it'll be a really nice, deep purple in color. Wow. So in fact, I also use it in salads. I powder it, and then I toast the powder, and then I sprinkle it over salads. So it adds a really nice, toasty and nutty flavor.
1: Wow, that's that's a tip I'm going to take home. (laughs) And can you do you mind telling us the recipe that you're going to make with it?
0: I'm going to
2: make an Indian dessert called Kheer. It's basically an Indian porridge that is made um, on any festival or on days when you're celebrating something or something good has happened. So I'm making black rice kheer with it. Kheer is usually made with white rice, but I've substituted the white rice in, in the recipe for black rice. And instead of using refined sugar, I'll be using jaggery that I've brought from India. Jaggery is found from sugar Cane is completely natural, and um, I'm using that. It has a very earthy flavor, so the earthy flavor of the sweetener jaggery will go really well with with the nuttiness and the earthiness of this rice in that porridge. So I'm in, I'm really excited to make it.
1: Absolutely, it sounds totally delicious. I can't wait to try it. Thank you. And jaggery, yeah, I mean, I I like to use different sugars in my cooking as well, and jaggery is just. The purest sugar you can get, isn't it? It's got all of the nutrients you could want.
2: So in my kitchen back home, we don't have any sugar, any processed sugar. We use different kinds of jaggery from different parts of India. Wow. Mm -hmm.
1: And have you got any... So you've got some jaggery today? Yes. You haven't got any spare, have you? I'd like to take some. I'll give you, you I have lots
2: of spare jaggery. I got a full kg. I only need 200 grams, so you can take the rest. (laughs)
1: Oh, that's so generous. (laughs) One sugar I usually... I'm I'm the same, actually. I, I like... I'm a whole food chef, really, so I'm kind of focusing on those simple like natural ingredients and use a lot of I think it's called rapadura sugar yes or pin I can't ever pronounce it but in it's similar to jaggery in Colombia it's called pin or yes. something like that yes. and each of these sugars or have their own deep flavors deep flavor. don't they that yes. add yes. to a dish in yeah in
2: fact in my restaurant with, with co- if you order coffee or tea the sugar pot that you are served actually has three different kinds of jaggery and people are usually apprehensive to add that to their coffee and to have it but once they have it the addicted and whenever they come back they're like that we love the taste of jaggery with coffee or without chai so yeah it's just a matter of trying it out i guess
1: absolutely it's like you're pro- promoting biodiversity through sugar just yes. like so simple just yeah in the coffee brilliant david what are some other ingredients that you're exploring at the moment within your cooking you s- you mentioned that you're doing some uh no meat balls
4: uh yeah but that's also in i think it's We talked about it yesterday also. The great thing with having this many chefs uh, workshopping together from all over the world, I mean, you have kind of the same trends of coming (laughs) all over the world with some alternative meat protein, for example. But the interesting thing now is that you you can also stay true to where you come from and you can cook those, you can make those in a way with using potatoes and uh, grains and oats and uh, mushrooms and stuff that we have here. You don't need to yellow peas, for example. You don't need to bring in um, yeah, things from the other side of the globe just to, to create those. Th- there has been a trend of someone starts doing meat-like plant-based things, but now when the industry is getting a lot more knowledgeable, wh- our, we chefs are also getting more knowledgeable in creating those I hate to w- use the word substitutes but meat analog products mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where uh, th- there is so many different roads to take there and do different kind of 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 meat like plant-based products as well so you will see different kind of of uh, heritage through them as well now which I think is a good thing mm-hmm. so there again it's like looking at the yeah the local grown vegetables Mm.
1: and I suppose the the European diet is so meat centric that those substitutes are necessary really Mm. for us to kind of shift towards a more plant focused diet because so like people are used to having meat on every meal or at least every day and so kind of it takes a little bit of of, um, experimentation and creativity to replace those proteins that people are used to eating by kind of
4: creating dishes like you're making it's really interesting so um, what i honestly think because i think there is before i was i was convinced that that we shouldn't do those like i, I never bought like meat substitutes or because I, I just didn't like them and then i didn't cook with them but i've seen that it's uh, actually place for them now in a different way like it, if you're doing it with vegetables yes you reach one group of Of uh, customers with it but there is hard to to get people that like meat to to go over to the the, to the to a product where you celebrate the vegetables only you need to have that bridge I think to to create something that is meat-like so you don't miss that like the sensation or that texture of meat in the long run maybe we won't do meat like products in you know 25 years from now maybe it's 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 the vegetables we celebrate instead
1: yeah I think it's a transition product isn't it it's like something that helps people convert I mean I as a vegetarian are you
4: vegetarian or no I'm not I'm very flexitarian flexitarian I would say. Yeah, some weeks yeah. it's, it's 100% plant based at home for example yeah. the kids are actually steering it a bit and I think it's interesting that they are actually through school getting educated also in like we have a climate issue for example they choose to not eat meat because of that it's not that they feel sorry for the animals like you heard many stories before it's now it's more about they are more aware of some of the climate issues that we have than than grown-ups i think
1: yeah this is greta thunberg's home hometown, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is. It is. It's um, great. it. It'd be great to speak to her, actually. I wonder if yeah. she's around. Um, but yeah, that's so, also interesting. And um, I'd love to know, like in India, it's the largest vegetarian population yes. in the world, isn't it? Yes. I think it's something like 30% of the population.
2: Yeah, 30 to 40% is vegetarian. The thing is, even the non-vegetarians at home, we eat chicken curry or mutton curry or fish curry on Sundays or twice or thrice a week. Otherwise, it's primarily lentils, veggies, seasonal veggies, uh, different kinds of breads, chapatis. And yeah, so uh, we, India really hasn't gone that far that it's go- it's going to be a task for it to return to its roots because we're still pretty much there. Uh, and even in my restaurant, like before coming here, I was, uh, I took out the item wise sales report where I saw that it's the, the sale of the vegetarian and the non-vegetarian dishes is almost equal and 2 weeks ago i started meatless mondays in oh, my restaurant wow. so Im- yeah so the response has been amazing and um i uh, every monday i i make a new menu of uh, vegetarian specials and people are willing to try it out and not opt for the meat option on that Monday. So, in fact, when I launched it, a lot of people came to the restaurant on Monday to try this out and to see what it's about. Because in India, no one's doing meatless Mondays right now. So, uh, the response has been very good. Our breakfast is mostly, what I said, parath- paratha. Lunch is a light uh, dal, like a bowl of lentils, a little bit of rice, one vegetable and a chapati bread. And then dinner. Is is then even lighter. So yeah, India is primarily veg and the food made at home is mostly vegetarian and is delicious. So it, it's so not delicious. that difficult to execute this in India.
1: Amazing. Pure veg. Um, and what's your best-selling dish?
2: My best-selling dish is uh, jikama from the tandoor, the uh, yam, so i make uh, i i cook yam in the tandoor which is the clay oven the indian clay oven marinate it in different spices and uh, surprisingly people have really enjoyed it along with jackfruit and uh, it's called the vegetarian's meat in india jackfruit so i do a lot of jackfruit dishes so these two are two of my best vegetarian best selling vegetarian dishes
1: delicious jackfruit's actually just becoming really popular in yes. the uk as well <laughs> Um, I've been cooking with it a lot recently, and I'm going to be cooking with it at the Chefs Manifesto in June nice. in, in London. In London, which yeah, I've n- we get it in cans a lot of the time. But uh, this time, I'm going to take the whole thing and process it. You couldn't give me a few tips on what, how I should I'll, do that? I'll
2: let you know <laughs> afterwards. Okay. Uh, because we use fresh jackfruit. We cook it in the clay oven. We make uh, cutlets or uh, cutlets out of jackfruit. And many times, I've served it to a non-vegetarian guest and asked them to guess what guess what it is. And they've all said it's mutton. Ah. So, yeah, they can't really <laughs> tell.
1: Do you know what? If you don't mind telling, I'm sure the listeners would love to know how to process, how would you make the cutlet dish if you if you had a jackfruit in front of you now? What would you do? Would you slice it up or
2: we would peel it, slice it up, uh, remove the seeds, uh, do something else with the seeds for later. Boil the boil the jackfruit in um, in water that's flavored with a few whole spices, so that the flavor of the spices infuses into the jackfruit, and then we would take it out. Um, I usually uh, take it through the the mincer mm-hmm. and then it becomes like a really nice mince. Oh, wow. Or if you can also uh, put some olive oil in it, put some more spices in it and roast it in the oven and then shred it. So it becomes like a pulled jackfruit mm-hmm. and then we uh, cook it in the pan with uh, oil spices seasonal fresh herbs like coriander onion garlic and tomatoes and we cook it up nicely and then we uh, mix it with either beetroot or uh, potatoes and make cutlets out of it and then crumb fry them wow so
1: yeah thank you that's <laughs> delicious
4: i'm really excited for t- yeah this presentation of the dishes we're cooking tonight since we're getting paired up with uh, these amazing chefs i'm working with the uh, um, chef Lerato from South Africa and we managed to and I hope <laughs> we will manage to during the day now but we managed to like she brought an ancient like maize flour that that they are using uh, a lot doing like kind of a polenta in, in uh, two different textures we sweeten it with the Swedish birch sap for example so it's it will be dessert as well and together with these grains that you tasted now to, and her like uh, white sage, she also brought from from South Africa. Those flavors together with the Nordic ones, I think these collaborations between uh, food cultures is the most exciting thing with being here. It, you learn so much from each other, and hopefully, it will be great tasting dishes with these like very very combined uh, food heritage.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And do you mind telling
4: our listeners? Where, where you're cooking this evening and what the event is? We, we're cooking here at, at Clarion Sign. We do a presentation for Sweden Food Tech. We have um, set up a, a room here where we yeah, basically present those collaborations that we have been working on or planned b- before. So there will be some amazing dishes, some things that, that we never seen before. And yeah, there will be a lot of new things for everyone that comes here, yeah.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. There's been so many good stories from you guys.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Next, I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio by a chef who discovered her love of food in New Zealand. Over her incredibly successful career, she worked at the Savoy and the Barclay with Marcus Waring before opening her restaurant Treadwells in London in 2014. It's great to have you on the Chef's Manifesto podcast, Chantel. Awesome to be here. So first, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about plant-based eating. For a chef of your level, it's an interesting choice, really. You did a plant-based cookbook, and it's kind of been one of your key focuses at Treadwells.
3: It has, and I think it's interesting how it came about and why it came about. And I think for me it was about wanting to create a restaurant that was very accessible for everybody, so that you felt if you had a dietary or a certain way you wanted to eat, you could come with a group of friends and you wouldn't have to feel... Left out of anything. So the more I did it, the more it interested me and the more I loved the challenge of kind of being able to say, right, okay, how can I create the same experience, the same flavour, texture with a dish with kind of half of the things that you'd normally use removed from from the equation? And just actually, yeah, really enjoyed the challenge of it.
1: Amazing. So what are some of the dishes that you've kind of discovered or put on your menu since taking this plant-based focus
3: i think some of it for me i always try and keep it seasonal so it changes throughout the year and i have a yeah i adore kind of asian cuisine of all types so Mm. generally the flavors i kind of tend to kind of mix and match a little bit as well and just i guess the discovery of things like aquafaba which kind of completely shifted what was possible in terms of especially for texture um, and for pastry so to be able to create aiolis that you know, mayonnaises that had exactly the same texture and flavour without the eggs was kind of quite game changing, actually. And yeah, for me, it's about, I guess, you know, having grown up in New Zealand, I was always surrounded by seasonal produce because it's such a small country, you had to eat seasonally. So we'd, you know, really look forward to the first asparagus, the first Fijoas, which are amazingly delicious New Zealand fruit. And... That was just kind of the excitement of it—the sweet corn, all those things. So for me, it's—I still get that excitement when the British things come into season. I think it's about celebrating those and enhancing them as much as possible. So you know, that first asparagus, the sweet corn, and then in winter, even the you know the Jerusalem artichokes, the sprouts, the parsnips—it's all they all. I think they all have an amazing place on the table.
1: Absolutely, it sounds like a truly natural focus of yours to as a seasonal chef to think about the vegetables first before the meat?
3: It's interesting because when I have chefs start, come into my kitchen and traditionally in a kitchen that I've been part of in the past the meat and fish is the big one that's got the, the kudos to it the kind of is the most technically advanced in some respects and kind of needs the most experience but actually in my kitchen the gardener section which is where all the kind of vegetables come from actually becomes really busy and we'll have nights where actually that's busier than the meat and fish section so it's really interesting the balance of of how to do it, and I think to, yeah, to be able to educate you know my team about that this actually, how to get something to taste as delicious and be excited about you know creating something, that is interesting and delicious that's not kind of meat or fish or, dairy based.
1: Your transition towards plant-based food is that purely accessibility, or is it also to do with the reduced environmental impacts?
3: Absolutely, it, it's both. I mean, it started out being. Um, obviously, you know, kind of five years ago, we're going back now. It started out being about the accessibility and the the kind of dining experience. But then, you know, the more I've learnt in the past five years and met people and been exposed to and educated about them the more it's actually a natural progression for me to want to do more plant forward food. And that's not to say that I wouldn't, you know, remove all of the everything else from the menu, but it's just about how to get the best out of it and to find and source the ingredients that have the least environmental impact as well.
1: Mm. And as a kind of core Chef's Manifesto member and person who's really proactive and engaged with the sustainable food movement, it'd be good to hear more about other projects that you have going at your restaurant. Are there any other concrete projects or schemes that you have There's kind of a lot in the inspire. air
3: <laughs> a lot in the air at the moment um, but a few, I guess a few kind of examples of things that we've done is, is working with some local you know just actually finding local producers which can be quite difficult in London. There's one I, a community project I work with called Organically that are based in Chingford so we get a vegetable delivery from them once a week and literally they tell us on a Monday what they've got and we say, right, we'll have this, this, and this, and then we get it on Tuesday night. So it's literally harvested the day we get it, which is just incredible. And, you know, there's a real sense of excitement when it does arrive. So I think things like that and wanting to find more of those things. Children, I think educating children is a big one as well. So I work with a charity called School Food Matters, and we quite often get groups of school children come into the restaurant and we make some things with them and show them kind of just talk about food and where it comes from. Because I think, you know, a lot of kids that grow up in London don't have. You know, the the privilege that I had to grow up in a country that has so much space and, you know, we'd go out for dinner and pick our salad leaves and, you know, it was very kind of, I feel very privileged now looking back on it. You know, when you grow up, things are just normal, they're around you, but to be able to actually know where food comes from um, and how to enhance it, I feel very lucky for. Um, also, in terms of things like waste, we're working really hard. The food waste bit is kind of, that's always been happening and we, we kind of really... My rule is that anything we can eat doesn't go in the bin, so it's only kind of bones or things that we can't really utilise in the current form um, that does go, and that then goes to gets collected by a food waste company that then turn it into compost and grow vegetables from it. So again, it's quite circular in that respect. And then also looking at how to, yeah, reduce kind of things like cling film and tin foil and paper and all these just different things that actually brings up a different scenario of how to how to cook as well.
1: Yeah, amazing. It's interesting to hear how a zero-waste philosophy is kind of really a holistic philosophy that analyses every part of where your food comes from, but also kind of your operations in the restaurant.
3: Absolutely, and I think these things that being in a site in central London has its challenges. For me, it's looking at what can make an impact. The things that I can change, the things I can't, um, but it's looking at how to, you know, using a green energy supplier, making sure we can... Um, recycle just using even we've just literally um started to use a sustainable spirit company that you can you really fill the glass bottles with pouches as opposed to just throwing the glass away as soon as you've done with it so all these really interesting cool things that are coming out of the woodwork and for me too i want to support these these new kind of startups that do that because i think if we can get to a point that that becomes the norm then we're all going to be in a better place.
1: Absolutely. So you've told us a little bit about aqua, how you use aquafaba or chickpea water to make aioli and mayonnaise and things like that. But do you, have you discovered any other interesting kind of zero waste techniques
3: or anything like that, that you'd like to share? I think it's, you know, similar to, I guess, what you do in respect of actually using root to fruit, using the whole vegetable. If it's the leaves, if it's the stalk, it's a way to be able to, if it's dehydrated and turn it into a powder, to be able to enhance something or flavour something that's really, you know, important. And I think it's it's just great seeing, um, I had a new head chef come and work with me probably about eight months ago, and just her getting really excited about those sorts of things too. So saying, actually, this is what we're using this bit to do this, we're using this bit to do that. Um, And it just becomes really, um, really interesting. And I think, again, it makes you think a bit more and challenges you.
1: Absolutely. So kind of rewinding a little bit, I'd love to know a little bit more about um, your involvement in the UN World Food Programme. Stop the waste move which i've heard you've put on a menu at treadwells or something like that
3: for me it was something that came about towards the end of last year and the stop the waste movement that the world food program were creating this campaign around and interestingly i thought okay well what is you know as a restaurant we're very good at reducing our food waste because again to make for it to be financially viable you can't be kind of wasting food um, but little techniques that I thought well actually there's things that we do that we don't really talk about the fact that we do um, and there's also things that you can do at home that actually again people don't necessarily realise. So for me it was things like using, talking about the fact that we use the more underused cuts of meat as well so things like lamb belly, pork collar that you don't necessarily see um, and obviously aren't, are probably the ones that are a bit harder for the butchers to to sell so again it's kind of helping them out in some respects. Um, And just things like, you know, even preserving, dehydrating, freezing. We had fig leaves that we had in summer that we just froze and so we were making a panna cotta out of those also using things such as Interestingly, a dessert I put on kind of years ago was a shoe bun. Um, so a bit like a peri breast, but it was with rhubarb and custard instead. And obviously we'd make them fresh every day and then we'd freeze them, the ones that were left over. So it got to a point where we had kind of loads of these in the freezer and I was like, well, what can we do with them? Um, tried a few things and came up with a um, <clears throat> a shoe nut, which I named it, which was basically <laughs> soaked it in a custard mix, deep fried it and coated it in cinnamon sugar. So it was like a cross between a, a shoe bun, a doughnut, and kind of a pampadou eggy bread type thing.
1: Maybe you'll get um, the next cronut. You should paint in that idea. Well,
3: I tried, and actually <laughs> someone's already got it. Um, but then actually, so we kind of used them all up, and now we actually make them make the shoe buns just purely for that dessert because it's kind of been something that's become a little bit, um, yeah, just iconic, and we just changed the garnish for the season. So there's all these things that do make you kind of think creatively, and I think with the menu which we called the consider eat menu it was just being conscious about those sorts of things I think just considering you know instead of actually putting that in the bin is there another way you can use it at home because I think the top five wasted foods in the UK are bagged salad, milk potatoes, bread and bananas so we're saying right okay actually you can um, old potatoes, you can make a baked potato soup you can make pesto out of the salad leaves instead of throwing them away, you can make ricotta out of your milk, just little things that people at home probably wouldn't necessarily think about um, and just again that just consider what you're doing so you know if the date on your milk says that it's passed you know, smell it, taste it, before you kind of just do the easy option of kind of pouring it down the sink.
1: Harder to do as a restaurant and still <laughs> still keep within the EHO guidelines or environmental health yeah, guidelines. Yeah, that, that's
3: the tricky, the tricky bit as in well.
1: A, in a restaurant, it's more to do with kind of good manage, stock management, isn't it?
3: Absolutely, and that's saying we buy what we need on a on a kind of daily basis and don't stockpile things that can go. Um, and then it's looking at things like, right? you know, we have star food, so if something is, if we have trim from meat or we have vegetable trim then it's about again challenging the chefs to actually create something delicious that their peers are all going to be eating um which again just makes them think a bit more
1: absolutely so um i guess what it'd be interesting to talk a bit more about would be how the chef's manifesto has helped you connect as a restaurant with the sustainable development goals Has it had an influence on on the way that you operate?
3: Hugely. I think for me, I didn't actually even know what a sustainable development goal was until five years ago. Um, And even just delving more into how, you know, the logic of them. And I think just breaking it down, I think that was the big thing about the Chester Manifesto Is that the eight thematic areas just make it, just kind of simplify it. And my point is always, well, if you can't, you know, nobody can do them all. But if you're doing at least one and then you start to do another one and another one, I think... What I really find, um, yeah, quite inspiring is the fact that, you know, you can be sitting with a chef from Nigeria, a chef from China, a chef from East Timor, and all, you know, your challenges are all similar in terms of the ethos of the the kind of main head of those challenges, but how you approach it can be very different in each country. And just even chatting about certain things, ingredients that are used, you just, it's just really interesting, educating and inspiring. And I think it's it just makes you think a bit differently it gives you a support network that if you do have an issue it's like hey what are you doing to combat this or you know thought process things that connor does in ireland are amazing um you know michael in nigeria there's just a huge amount of um yeah i mean sharing resources and learning will always get us much further ahead than than not
1: yeah it's been for me the shifts manifesto has been all about that really it's about Mm. kind of sitting next to chefs like you whether it's at an action hub or here at the podcast and learning from each other and kind of yeah rubbing shoulders
3: yeah and just I think it's sharing those you know kind of common you know the challenges that we all have and yeah finding great ways to support each other and to support movements that are happening and just learning education is is a huge part of it and to be able to just I think also think a bit differently and, and consider things a bit more as well
1: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Chantel. It's been a pleasure as always.
3: Thank you so much.
1: And that's all for this episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Please subscribe to join us next time when I'll be talking to former US President Barack Obama's White House chef, Sam Cass, about his vision for our food future and about the role that private sector and public policy play in ensuring good food for all. I'll also be joined by Haitan chef Natasha Gomez, who is a passionate promoter of local tourism, social gastronomy and women's rights. If you like the show, please rate, comment and share our podcast. We need your help as chefs and food lovers to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by the year 2030. Until then, bye for now.
4: There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients
2: grown with respect to the earth or
4: Fairly to oceans Protection of biodiversity and improved animal welfare
2: Investment in
3: livelihoods Value natural resources and reduce waste
4: Waste is recyclable
0: Waste is unnecessary
3: Waste is criminal
4: Celebration of local and seasonal food
3: I
0: focus on
2: plant-based ingredients.
3: Education on food safety. And healthy diets.
2: Nutritious food that is accessible accessible. and
3: affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians.
2: Suppliers. Farmers.
1: Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved.